Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate investor and real estate broker, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Nick Hill. Thank you for having me as always, Dan. My name is Nick Hill. I am a mortgage agent and a real estate investor and recent podcast co-host. And we are here today to give you... We've got a really good episode today. Yeah, I'm I like really this excited one. for this one, Dan. Yeah. So I guess before we start, there's a little bit of crazy news going on right now. CBC, yes, I guess by the time this episode airs, CBC will have put out this... They just announced they're doing this like mortgage fraud expose on Friday, October 14th. So I'm very excited to see that. Investigative journalism. I love it. You know, I heard this was going on. I heard kind of some stuff that this might be going on. So, uh, and apparently there's hidden camera footage and all that stuff. So, I mean, it could really be a turning. Yeah, it could be really be a turning point in the Canadian real estate market if this whole thing, you know, I mean, most people would say this is like a cultural norm. Everybody's doing mortgage fraud. Like it sounds like that, right? So, well, I disagree with that. But as a mortgage agent, I do not participate in that. But yes, unfortunately, you're right. It, it is way too Sounds rampant. So a little bit of a gotcha journalism might do the trick there. Yeah. So the other things is UBS bubble index just came out. Toronto and Vancouver are both on the list. Toronto was number one on the list. And the last time That's that happened- That's a good happened, thing, right? Yeah, number one? Yeah. The last time that happened was actually in 2017 when prices dropped 30 to 40% in the greater Toronto area. So- we're also seeing interest rate protests, which we touched on briefly. So there's people basically protesting interest rate hikes. And now fixed interest rates are going up. So bond yields today, I think, are about like 3.5 range. Yeah, the fixed year, we've seen some move. the five-year fix, we've seen some movement on that. Probably up about 30 bips, kind of basically overall. This and this was partially affected by some of the activity we've seen in other central banks across the world, particularly the Bank of England and the kind of damage control they're doing right now with the whole mess with their pension funds and, and buying back the savings bonds. But this puts the rate at 5.35, which is actually the highest since 2008. So I'm sure we'll spend some time unpacking a lot of those news articles and events in the upcoming episodes or on our other social medias. But for now, we have got a jam-packed episode. So without further ado, let's dive right into today's episode. So there's a similar phenomenon happening with cities across North America. The city is sprawling and flat for miles and miles, then all of a sudden a bunch of huge towers. We can see this in American cities like Los Angeles and Minneapolis, but also at home in Canada, in Toronto, Mississauga, Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, and more. It gets even more noticeable when you get up close and you see a single family home across the street or even right next to a 30-story condo. I used to live right at the Young and Eglinton Corridor in Toronto and saw this kind of stuff all the time. So why are there only two options for city living? Live in a condo or live in a single family home? But what if a condo doesn't suit my lifestyle or a single family home is way out of my price range? There must be a better way. Well, there is. And if you've ever been to a European city and walked the streets of, let's say, a Barcelona, a Rome, or a Paris, or if you're familiar with older and less restrictive North American cities, primarily New York, Chicago, and Montreal, you will see the building types we need, the buildings known as the missing middle. It is interesting. I mean, almost as if in history, the invisible hand of the market was playing a bigger role in the municipal planning. You know, to 
introduce this topic a little bit and the vision we want to establish for this episode. This stuff is important to us because our generation has been marginalized and disenfranchised by what's happening in the housing market. And as investors, that plays a key role in us being able to afford investments, but also for the people that we are providing housing for if we are residential real estate investors. One of my personal goals in life has always been to actually become a missing middle developer. And, you know, I, I, in university, was really exploring construction innovation. I was awarded by CMHC, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, and the University of Guelph as well for research I was doing in this, basically building missing middle housing out of recycled shipping containers. And COVID's supply disruptions obviously changed the economics of that a lot. So I, I can't really build as much missing middle infill as I want right now, but I'm getting the feeling that, you know, through this podcast, one of the ways that we could really have an impact on that and you know, the motivation of others to build missing middle housing in Canada. And I think that as a landlord, it's a really accessible, as an investor, it's a really accessible way to get into the market. So the missing middle goes somewhere between mid-rise and low-rise. So let's start by defining these things, Nick. Yeah. So low-rise, we're all familiar, is basically ground-based housing. So basically houses, not units in a building detached semis or townhomes. Yeah. And that used to go up to about four stories. Now we're saying it's almost six stories where basically where wood construction ends, where typical traditional wood construction ends. So then you get into mid-rise, which is sort of your four to 12 story range, or now your six to 12 story range. And that's where you can build with more hybrid construction types. And we've got high rise here is anything over 10, but it varies. It can be 10 to 12 stories and then all the way up to, you know, the 30, 60 and, and 90 plus story buildings that we're seeing. So basically the missing middle is anything wedged in between low rise and mid rise. These projects can fit small sites, allowing us to build faster to respond to market demand, which is crazy in Canada and the urgency is desperately needed here. Now, it's easier to build these and they are not super demanding on the existing infrastructure, let's say another fire hydrant or another sewer connect. It's a lot smaller of an ask than if you're building a 30 plus story condo. And they're more cost effective to build as well. You can build up to six stories, as we were mentioning before, with wood frame construction in my opinion, provides a better quality of life for the residents. And we've actually seen a big resurgence in wood frame construction, especially in the mid-rise commercial space over the last few years, which has been great because it is definitely more environmentally friendly. Yeah. And I do think that there is evidence that there is a better quality of life in these types of buildings for residents. I mean, you do get a little bit of green space. It's You're not crammed in with a bunch of people. I mean, especially in this global pandemic era, you know, we saw the high rises being challenged a little bit, density being challenged a little bit as a concept. So when I talk about buying properties that have future development potential located on major arterial roads, you'll hear, I'm sure you've heard me say this hundreds of times on this show already. This is what I'm talking about building on those sites one day. Yeah, I love that. But unfortunately, these projects are often limited by a couple of things. And most notably, which we'll get into later and probably deserves an episode itself is a very depressing word in the development and real estate space, and that is exclusionary zoning. And within exclusionary zoning comes a little bit of a militia of municipal council meeting attendees, often referred to using the euphemism NIMBYs. 
which is not in my backyard. These will usually be people that have been living in a nice, probably upscale, single-family home-dominated residential neighborhood that just don't want you and your stupid condo or your stupid mid-rise development coming in and messing up their neighborhood. Yeah, and you see this nimbyism happen a lot even on just individual multiplexes. Like, you know, people are like, I don't want to see a fourplex around the corner from my house. People can take it to the council and complain about it. It's funny because if you listen to these people, a lot of them will agree that density definitely needs to be increased. It's not in their backyard. Just don't do it here. Yeah, exactly, right? Okay, so Dan, tell us what type of properties exist within the Missy Middle now that we've kind of gone over what it is. Yeah, so it's a pretty big scope of properties and it's an interesting scope as well. I'm actually like just salivating reading this list because these are all the kinds of properties that I want to own or build as a small cap investor. So first off, we have everyone's favorite on this show, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, fiveplexes. Was that a Dr. Seuss? <laughs> That's good. We should do a little Dr. Seuss beginner for real estate investing for kids or something. That'd be hilarious. Start them young. After all the plexes, we move into row housing. Now, I just wanted to point out that the big difference between a row house and a townhouse is the outside. So row houses got their name because these houses are lined up perfectly in a row along a street. It differs from a townhome because a row house often looks exactly the same as all of the other ones surrounding it. These homes have a very uniform look and a common facade became particularly popular in the 19th and 20th centuries because they were quick, easy, and inexpensive to build. Yeah, now they're building townhouses basically to look like it was a bunch of additions. And even like I find these McMansions, it's like they're modern farmhouse style and it, they build them to look like somebody added onto it 50 times. Anyway, we, not architecture critics here, although we are quoting <laughs> one. Stacked row housing is next on the list. We talk about seeing stacked towns in Canada a lot. This is like, in my perspective, probably a sad excuse for a missing middle housing concept. Builders hate building them right now. Like a lot of my development mm -hmm. clientele, I can't sell stacked town house sites right now because... They're very tough to price and the trades don't want to build them. Yeah, you know, it's it's like almost there. It's so close, but we still somehow missed the target on that one. Another one which is really cool that I've seen in Europe, that I've seen in California, but haven't really seen a ton of in cities across Canada is courtyard housing. Courtyard housing is really cool. It's a distinct medium density multifamily housing topology centered around a shared outdoor space. So we've all seen this. You might have a cluster of, you know, 5, 10, 25 homes, and they all share a common courtyard, which essentially replicates their, you know, front yard, backyard space. Yeah. I mean, I, I love these types of housing concepts. They kind of give yeah, me that same. like mid-century, like the Miami vibes, even like with the totally. palm trees. Yeah. And the, anyway, um, the next up is obviously the the highest or densest missing middle housing concept, which is your apartment buildings. So you have low rise apartments, basically up to four stories. And then we're sort of seeing the integration of this kind of low end of mid rise apartments. So less than six stories. So basically your four to six story range being integrated into this missing middle housing concept. Yeah. And I guess the kind of the last one on the list there would be the live work situation. These are usually made up of small to medium size, basically, you know, two to three and a half, four stories attached or semi-detached structures consisting of one or multiple dwelling units above or behind a fire-separated flexible workspace below. So that 
you know, we've, we've seen these, these are common, but they're just not common enough. So if you're walking down any street in any major city and there is a little cafe or a bakery or some kind of storefront and there is at least one or more units above that, that's what we're calling live work. So these do exist, but they're not zoned. It's hard to build something like that. It's hard to go into a residential neighborhood. They could probably use a dry cleaners or a convenience store or some kind of little outlet of some point and have that zoning for a multi-use. So I just pulled a little bit of a chart here before we move on. I wanted to give some percentages of residential land zoned for single family homes. So I'm going to be telling you the place and the percentage of that land within that city. So for instance, Montreal, which is probably the best place in Canada for the missing middle housing, 46% of the land in Montreal is zoned for single family. In Toronto, it's 62%. Calgary, 67%. Edmonton, 69%. And then Vancouver has an 80%. One percent, a whopping eighty-one percent of land is zoned for residential single-family homes. Wow, not too friendly to developers. What's the incentive there, Dan? Yeah, I think it's interesting, especially you know talking about that live-work element as well. You know, you walk down a lot of these older historic downtowns, like your Queen Street West or whatever, and these are the places that are so charming, and the cities really like you know celebrate these cool historic districts. And yet we don't want to see them built today. And those areas are, you know, a lot of cases, those were owner-occupier owned buildings. It was somebody who was like, I want to run my Greek restaurant as an example, because I have a, a place in the Greek area of, uh, of Toronto for sale right now that is one of these types of buildings. Ground floor commercial, the owner runs the restaurant there. They live in one of the suites up top or two of the suites up top and they rent out one. So they get a little bit of income as well. This is good stuff for the community. These are small, these little microcosmic communities that are being built around these housing concepts. So we're disconnecting ourselves by not building this stuff. Totally. It increases walkability. It increases that sense of community, increases that sense of buying local and giving the opportunity sure. to do so. Yeah. And, and there's green, like, you know, we're seeing this huge push towards green policy in Canada and it, by going towards all of those things, you're celebrating that or, or helping in those initiatives. So it's worth thinking about those things in how the policy environment in Canada is getting more and more favorable towards this type of housing. It's unignorable that we have this housing crisis in Canada and we have to do something about it. And this is, we know there's so much evidence that this is the thing that is going to be done about it. So in a perfect world, if you can buy a property today, you know, again, trying to create value for real estate investors here, we're not planning experts by any means. So why does this matter to investors? If you can buy a property today that has value today and value tomorrow, you found yourself a slam dunk deal. This is why I encourage investors to buy, again, Properties on major arterial roads because those are the areas where missing middle development is going to become encouraged. And I'm personally investing in these properties as if I'll be eventually be able to build that missing middle product. In a lot of cases, you can find that out by looking at a municipal secondary plan as an example. So if you're interested in investing in an area, Google that town's name and then the word secondary plan. It'll show you the areas where this type of density will eventually be encouraged. A lot of this comes from a book called House Divided. And I actually messaged the author on Twitter, um, Alex from the Globe and Mail. Yeah. And he was actually just listed in the stories, yeah. influential real estate people. Yeah, he well. was. Yeah. Yeah. So great guy. So we reached yeah. out to him for comment for the show. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, he looked at some of the stuff we were mentioning and he was like, yeah, you guys really hit it on the head, but, you know, push that 
it, it is going to become more common in policy because of these green initiatives, because we have like every government right now is really focusing on those things. And this is, it's staring us in the face. It's green. It's built from renewable materials. It's walkable. It checks all those boxes. So we're, it's going to happen. So one of the things that we're, you know, why it's going to happen, especially beyond those elements is necessity is the mother, mother of invention. Thinking about these words in Canada that we hear all the time, affordability crisis, we literally numbed ourselves to hearing this, but we're in a place where like in our country right now, a good portion of the population is living in a second world state almost because of this K-shaped recovery that happened as a result of monetary policy during the global pandemic. And this is important from my perspective, because if you're providing a need as a landlord, if you're providing housing, you're providing something of value, you're solving a problem, this need for housing. And in my case, that is a deep systemic problem that isn't going away. So as long as this notion that we are in a state of housing crisis, or there's excess demand for housing, there will always be a demand for that solution that you're providing, which is housing. And how do we do that? Well, let's think about the title of the book that I just mentioned, House Divided. Yeah, and it's the title of the book that really does it all for me from my perspective. As investors, we create value by taking a single unit and either cutting them up or adding more units. This can be as simple as taking a single detached family and duplexing it or as sophisticated as buying a vacant lot and building a four-story apartment building. But regardless, if you're creating units, you are creating value. In Canada, the way you create appreciation and the way you create value or add income streams to properties is by adding units. The more tenants means more checks, means more diversification, means more protection against vacancy risk. Yeah. And to me, when you think about missing middle, when you think about multiplexing stuff, it's low cost, high benefit. If you think about your properties as assets or even businesses, Think about the way that business people make decisions. When businesses make decisions, they do a cost-benefit analysis. And so if you're thinking about the ROI or return on investment, of the best returns you can get is adding a unit. And the cheaper you can do that, the cheaper you can add a unit, the better. So, Nick, let's take a quick break. Then I want to talk a little bit about the construction cost advantage and why this makes sense as a missing middle. All right, so let's talk about construction costs and how they impact our decisions as real estate investors and why they are relevant to this missing middle conversation. So this information comes from Altus Group's 2022 Canadian Cost Guide. Now, I would take all this with a grain of salt because a lot of developers we work with have started to say, has, sorry, have stated that there's a bit of inaccuracy given how quickly construction prices and the construction market overall is changing from a labor perspective, materials, etc. But to illustrate, and for comparative purposes, this should work. So let's say you're building a high rise. Now, you're typically building it out of concrete, so the cost per square foot is higher. So you get the price per square foot, and you add the total project cost and divide by the total number of square feet. If you are building a high-rise concrete construction, cost is usually around 350 to 450 cost per square foot right now. Although it does vary across the country depending on the cost of labor, materials obviously bigger, more expensive, luxury projects and markets typically cost more. But for example, in Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, it should cost about 205 to $285 per square foot, whereas in other Hotter, more expensive markets such as Vancouver, it could cost upwards of $295 to $380 per square foot, or it can be extremely high all the way up to $450 to $500 a square foot 
for a market like Toronto. And we see that the Toronto is the hottest market in North America based off of the RLB crane index, which Dan is going to jump into right now. Yeah. So the RLB crane index basically measures how many cranes are up in each city in North America. And Toronto has led that index since 2015. So we've had the most cranes in the sky in North America since 2015. In Q1 of 2022, Toronto had 252 cranes working on construction projects, far outdistancing the second place city in the crane index, which was Los Angeles, which had 51, just 51. Like 200 201 more. Wow. So Seattle was next on the list with only 37. And then Calgary was after Seattle at 31. Washington, D.C. had 26. So you could almost deduce that to say Calgary is a faster growing market than Washington, D.C. based on this index. More construction money is being spent in Calgary than in the political capital of the United States. Yeah, that is pretty crazy. And this makes me think of an episode we just did about you know, migration and immigration. And this is capital migration. Yeah. So if you look at capital migration, tie that with actual people migration, Calgary is looking pretty damn bullish because if we remember, Calgary is basically the second and largest growth market outside of Ontario in the country by 2040. There'll be millions more people there. I believe it was 3 million more in the next 20 years. Anyways, we're supposed to be talking about the missing middle. Why are we talking about cranes and high rises? Well, this is why. When you think about the idea of scarcity and a housing crisis, you think, what are the bigger players doing in the market? Well, there's a few different things. First, you can see them as leading indicators. If other big players with far more capital, more research, and teams of employees analyzing deals are putting money into these places. Secondly, you can see them as competitors. The crane index, Dan mentioned, was the Q2 report, but that same report for Q3 just came out, and here's what it has to say. Dan, tell me about that quote you pulled. Yeah, so the greater Toronto area saw a decrease in the number of cranes to 230, dropping 8.7%. Yeah, I know. We're almost back at, we're almost down at that 57 that LA's got. So it dropped 8.7% since the last report. And that, which is a big drop. There has been a significant decline in new condo sales and mixed-use projects, as well as staffing challenges related to a strike in, by Ontario construction workers. Yeah, so when you think about these high-rise builders in areas like Toronto actually slowing down, we've seen a decrease in a number of cranes. You can see this as something to be fearful of, or you can realize that one thing remains true in Canada. And that is, we just saw record immigration. So if you think about the underlying macro fundamentals, there are less homes in Canada than people who want to live in those homes. So the amount of supply is decreasing because of the high-rise projects being canceled. And I think Ben Tao even said something like a third of projects in Toronto are being canceled or put on hold. The amount of demand is not decreasing while the supply is decreasing. Demand is actually increasing because of immigration. And so we're seeing a decrease in the number of units being built by high-rise developers, that 8% reduction in in crane count, and 33% of high-rise projects postponed. And those units cost more to build. Yeah, they're starting to cost a hell of a lot more to build. So let's break this down a little bit. If I go back to those same per square foot construction costs that we just spoke about, but we apply them to the missing middle housing concepts, you'll quickly start to see that there is an advantage here. 
So if you're building a building up to six stories, you can build it out of wood rather than having to use concrete or steel, or you can even use a hybrid method of construction, you know, more heavy on the timber frame and only using, let's say, steel for the shell of the infrastructure around it. So typically there are cost savings here. If you look at these numbers that we we're looking at before, per square foot, if you're building a missing middle house, you can imagine spending something like two to $300 per square foot, which is a pretty big reduction from the 350 to 450 number we had mentioned. And that figure is on the high end of the building scope. So those numbers are more for your four to six story wood frame departments. If you're thinking of building something smaller, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, then your construction costs can be even lower and you're basically building the same method. You're using the same style of building balloon frame construction as you would in a single family home. So let's not forget about condo fees. Condo fees can be extremely difficult and can very quickly, and I'm going to talk about this from two perspectives, from the mortgage perspective and from the investor perspective. The one thing that I don't like about condos is condo fees. Now we can get into those in greater detail at, at a later date, but condo fees from a mortgage perspective kill more deals than anything else. Condo deals from a cash flowing investment perspective, if you're doing a long-term buy and hold, don't usually cash flow. So the other thing that I love about this missing middle housing stock is it presents a great opportunity to get people in there as mortgage, to get the mortgage. And it also presents a great opportunity for investors to allow people to get in there and actually cash flow. So it's a win-win for both the tenant, the owner, the renter, whatever it may be. For sure. And before we wrap this up, I kind of want to explore the exact opposite end of the spectrum, which is the low rise construction. And to me, that's where this big advantage becomes exceptionally clear. If you're a missing middle housing provider, you're building at low rise costs, but you're putting multiple units in that low rise structure. So imagine building at the same cost as a single family detached, but getting two to four times the density two times the density if you're duplexing it and four times the density if you're fourplexing it. And don't get me wrong, you got to put an extra kitchen in and whatever. So the per square costs are going to vary a little bit. But the idea here is getting units on the market because we know units are the product. They're the scarce product right now. Everybody needs getting units on the market for cheaper than other people, other smarter people with big, big money that are building huge condo buildings are putting the same units on the market. Because at the end of the day, they're both doing the same thing. They're providing rental stock for tenants. So if you go back to the idea that the fundamental in Canada is immigration and a housing crisis, people talk about this underlying idea almost like it's an arbitrage. I've literally sat with developers who have said these, like said these words. In economics and finance, arbitrage is the practice of taking advantage of a difference in prices in two or more markets, striking a combination of matching deals to capitalize on the difference, the profit being the difference between the market price and the price at which the unit is traded. And I've sat in the room with a developer who basically described this phenomenon where housing units in world-class cities are almost like an arbitrage opportunity when you're selling a unit in Toronto as comparison to another world-class city, let's call it like Hong Kong, Beijing, or London. And we have limits on land in Canada. So there's almost this arbitrage on availability of land and rezoning if you can bring development land into the pipeline. But I, I it was kind of lost on me because like I went after, I didn't know what the word meant and I looked it up and I was like, it's not really an arbitrage. But there almost is one here. And that is the practice of, again, taking advantage of a difference in price in something. And in our case, that price is the cost of creating a single housing unit 
that's available for rent. So let's say that high-rise builder, your competitor, is spending more money to bring those units to market. They're actually spending upwards of 30 to 50% more in some cases. Let's just say it costs them $350,000 to build a unit. In order to sell those units a pre-con investor, to a pre-con investor, they have to charge a higher price. Then the pre-con investors are buying those units. Let's say they're spending $400,000. So there's a delta between it of $50,000 profit to buy a pre-con unit in Calgary as an example. So if you're a missing middle investor, you listen to the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast and you're like, I want to make a duplex. I want to make, I want to go buy random houses and, and fourplex them. If you can build a comparable unit, a comparable suite on your property, whether it's a laneway house or a basement suite or a top up second story, whatever it is, I don't care. If you can do that for less than 400 grand and command the same amount of rent, you've technically exploited that arbitrage. If you can do it for less than the cost to build, now we're really seeing these juicy returns. So as long as you can do that for less than 350 grand, which is achievable, especially if you're thinking up down duplex, just finishing a basement as an example, now you're really cooking. Yeah, I love that. So before we get to the the end here and kind of you know do a debrief on everything we talked about i wanted to rewind this all the way back to the early 1900s cuz that's when this whole concept started in north america and unfortunately we have to talk about the pretty extreme exclusionary zoning laws that were introduced as far back as 1912 in toronto and here's a shocker some of them still have not changed it is crazy we've seen over 110 years and not much change. So these laws prohibited building anything other than single family homes in vast areas of the city, essentially literally making it illegal, outlawing the building of any missing middle stock, particularly apartments. You know, again, this goes back to my example that I that I opened up with of you see that 30 plus story condo and right across the street there's a single family home. There's a condo within this single family neighborhood. There was also a major push for car dependent suburbs when, and, and you know, that's the quote unquote American Canadian dream, right? Of a home ownership with a house, front yard, backyard, white pick a fence, all that good stuff. And that was a big push in the 1940s, kind of after the war, there was a push outside of the cities Go buy a car, drive into the city for work, drive back to your perfectly lovely suburban paradise home. Well, that doesn't really seem to be possible anymore. Cities have grown drastically. There's a whole new generation that wants and different things at different parts of their life. And a lot of those single family homes in suburbia aren't affordable anymore. Or the traffic is so bad that you cannot or I mean, you can, but you might hate it, spend the hour, two hours driving to and from your workplace. So really, in my opinion, this has left the door open for policy changes. And we have started to see these with the introduction of laneway suites and the introduction of you know zoning changes that allow for multi-residential properties to be built on, on existing properties across the country. So I'm really hoping this could be kind of an early start in policy change, but it could also present one of the largest opportunities in Canadian real estate history. And why is that, Dan? Well, you know, this is really why we say focus on creating income, and that's where you're going to create tangible value. Income streams in assets are what create real 
appreciation over time. The same as a market just appreciates in value, a good asset will appreciate in value. Good assets are appreciated is, is sort of the pun we came up with. So you want to increase your ability to borrow, you got to increase your income. You want to increase your income, well, you got to add an income stream. And in this case, an income stream is a new unit. You want to burr, you want to buy, renovate, rent, refinance, add a unit. You want to get real alpha when flipping a property, add a unit. You want to diversify your vacancy risk heading into the biggest recession of our millennial lifetimes, add a unit. It's pretty simple here. Am I noticing a theme here? <laughs> I mean, look, without beating a dead horse, we really, I really wanted to contextualize for our listeners why we talk so much about creating value. And because I think that, you know, looking back to episode number one, how does what happens to real estate in Canada when interest rates are going up? We know prices are coming down and we know that we're probably not going to see a massive appreciation environment again for the foreseeable future in Canada. The get rich quick scheme of real estate, the 30% year over year growth is it's behind us. So where and you and you know, you use some some pretty strong words there. This could present one of the largest opportunities in Canadian real estate history. And I agree with you. You know, the guys on uh, the Canadian investor podcast say the most important market of your lifetime is that second bull run, right? And so we're heading into our sort of our first bear after we had we've seen bull runs, but we weren't economically able to participate in them, but they were close enough. They happened in our lifetime so we can learn from them. And so we're seeing this, you know, eventually the market, the dust will settle and there will be a bull run. And when that comes around, there will be policy changes that happen between now and then from my perspective that are going to make it incredibly opportune for people who understand the information that we just presented. Yeah, I love that. And to be honest, I couldn't agree more. A few other things I want to point out as to why I love the, the you know, the the missing middle and why I would love to, you know, I know we want to team up. We already are in the early stages of possibly teaming up with with some guys that are doing this in Toronto. And I know that this is an issue across the country. Now, we do I did want to touch on two things that we kind of left out there, Dan, which is greenfield and infill. Now, those are both types of development, and the reason why they're important is because infill development is, at this point, directly tied to both NIMBYs as well as possible missing middle housing stocks. So greenfield development is when you drive by a farmer's field and then, you know, a year later, there's 150 new houses that pretty much look the same, you know, that didn't used to be there for two years ago. Now, now they're there. That's greenfield development, essentially taking a greenfield and turning it into a new suburb. Infill development is when there is that house on the block that gets torn down, you know, it might have been the smallest or crappiest house in the block. All of a sudden now there's a three-story modern looking or whatever it may be, but there's a brand new house there. Now, this is where the NIMBYs come into play, that that house will usually, in most cases, unfortunately be met with, let's say, what's a good word here, Dan? <laughs> No, no, no. Well, I mean, I guess if it's like, if you're seeing single family infill, then it's support, right? Like, it's funny because, you know, there's this, like, you look at some of these NIMBY neighborhoods and you see like the three-story beautiful modern houses. And I'm like, that would make for such a, like the, the built form, like when you look at it physically, it's like, that would make for such a sexy triplex, but it's like a 6,000 square foot house, right? So it is funny because like physically you're seeing the same houses built in some of these areas. But the context of infill is kind of important as well, because Ontario would be a good example of a framework of this. So across the province, we have these things called secondary plans. And infill makes sense. And the reason it's encouraged and infill is very much missing middle product is it leverages the existing 
existing infrastructure. So when you talk about that greenfield, somebody's got to go and put in a bunch of utilities, utilities infrastructure, electricity, roads, water treatment plants, sewer roads. Yeah. And so whereas if we're making better use of the existing land inventory, and that's what these secondary plans are designed to do. Basically what happens is the federal government says to the provinces, you guys got to figure out what to do with your land to accommodate. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to meet this immigration target, 400,000 people or whatever it is. You guys have to figure out how to accommodate this many people in your province. And then the provinces go and say, okay, hey, municipalities, here's our recommendation on how you're going to meet these. And so in Ontario, we have something called the Places to Grow Act. And basically the, the province trickles down and says to all of these, these municipalities, hey, here's your area's growth targets. Let's sit together every five years and we'll come up with this thing called a secondary plan, which is how we're going to use that existing land inventory to meet that population growth target. And it's going to be done sensibly to maximize existing transit, not cause too much trouble on traffic, et cetera. And then also not cause too much traffic in like the poop pipes. Like you don't want to have, you know, sewage backups, et cetera, et cetera. So these frameworks exist. They just haven't been massively adopted yet. And that's, from my perspective, that's the renaissance period we're about to enter is this renaissance period of infill housing of the sensible addition of new units. And I think that that can be done. I don't think the housing crisis has to be solved by institutional scale public sector. To be honest with you, if it was going to be done, if it was going to be solved by those people, it already would have. And they failed. The government and the institutional scale together have not solved the housing crisis. So who's going to do it? It's going to be us. It's going to be investors. It's going to be seriously like, and I actually really think this is real meaningful shit that us and our listeners can actually do to fix a real problem that Canada is going to be dealing with for our entire lifetimes. So instead of saying, be the change you want to see in the world, you are saying, build the units that you want added into the environment? Yeah, build the units you want to see in the world. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, another thing I love about the infill side is, you know, I'm so sick and tired of, of all the just the glass buildings yeah. that we see yeah. in, in Toronto. It is a nicer and Vancouver and Calgary. Like it's just... It's the same building after, you know, time and time again. Okay, this one's a little, this one's got a shade of green in the glass. This one's a different shade of blue than the 30 other ones around it. Infill developments allow for architects, engineers, and builders to put a stamp of creativity to try to match that neighborhood, to try to, you know, make that neighborhood a bit more beautiful. And they, again, they can do it with a lot less, ideally, bureaucracy and red tape moving forward than they do now. I can't believe we got through all that stuff that quickly, Dan. That was a, a jam-packed episode full of good stuff. I want to do a full another unpacking one where we look at more missing middle stuff, more in-depth, and maybe even you know look at some infill developments across the country that have been met with some backlash that I'm hoping are you know, I'm hoping that was the word I was looking for earlier, backlash and, and negativity. And I'm hoping that you know we see less nimbyism and more infill and more missing middle start to appear. Yeah. And I think it'd just be such a cool success story for this podcast, like not just for us, but for our listeners and for like the community that we're trying to build. It's, you know, I mean, in the States, there's some really cool real estate podcasts, Bigger Pockets being a great example. And some of the stuff that they're playing in is, you know, like storage and whatever it is. And there's a lot of cool opportunities for small to mid cap investors in the US markets. But in Canada, it's like, this is real meaningful stuff. And it would be, I think it'd be really remarkable 
remarkable to be able to say 20 years from now that, you know, a bunch of millennial kids who were hosting these little meetup groups across the country and all listening to the same podcast and all members of the same Facebook group and, you know, talking shit to each other on Twitter or whatever it was solved or, or played a very meaningful role in, in solving the housing crisis in Canada. And like, it sounds like too, you know, big picture and like woo woo dreamy to say that, but I actually think that like, that's something that we could do. And it's literally just like one unit at a time. Yeah. I love that. You heard it here first, folks. We will single-handedly solve the Canadian housing crisis one unit at a time. Well, no single hands. Like that's going to be like, we got to put together a lot of people to do this. So tell all your friends. (laughs) Very good point. That's it for us today, folks. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate all your love and support. Reach out to Dan and I with any questions, any opportunities, any deals you want to work with us on or us to take a look at. We are here for you. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in GNH Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.